Well, that's clear, isn't it? No need to teach it. Uh, it's all right there in front of you, right? If you're new with us, we're going through the book of Daniel, and we're in um, uh, the latter part of the book now as uh, the text looks ahead to uh, things in the future, some of which are now things of history. And so let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help as we study it together. <clears throat> Father, we know that the unfolding of your words gives light, it imparts understanding to the simple. And I pray that you would give us understanding today. And that as we understand your word, we would be changed by your word. That we would not simply be charmed by the Bible. We would be changed by the Bible. And so come today, we pray, and attend to your word. In Jesus' good name we pray. Everyone said, amen. Well, today we often hear these uh, various debates, don't we, about who the real goat is. <laughs> the greatest of all time. The most common debate uh, seems to be one related to MJ and LeBron James which in my opinion is not really a debate at all, but MJ is, of course, the greatest player of all times. That's undisputed, it should be. Uh, but there are other debates about who's the real goat. Muhammad Ali always said he was the goat, declaring himself to be the greatest of all time. A few years ago at the Super Bowl, this passage was actually read, believe it or not. It was cited, Daniel chapter 8, verse 7, no one could rescue the ram from the goat's power. And they cited the text because the Rams were playing against Tom Brady, the GOAT. Well, this passage is not about Tom Brady. It's not about uh, MJ. But it does tell, foretell about world leaders and kingdoms. And Daniel sees this mighty ram, uh, Medo-Persia, that is destroyed by a mighty GOAT, Greece. And then Daniel tells us of the rise of a relatively obscure king, from a split off of the Greek empire, a little horn. And this little horn will attack God's people viciously. Now, unlike some of the previous visions we've looked at in the text, this one actually comes with a clear interpretation, at least on certain details. If you were uh, picking up on the text in verse 20 and 21, uh, we're cl clearly told that the ram is Medo-Persia and that the goat is Greece. We're even told of the first king of Greece, which of course was Alexander the Great. Now we've been looking at Greece and Persia. Last week also Rome, these empires in previous texts uh, in, in, uh, in Daniel. And now we're back again as uh, uh, Persia will reign and conquer and they will be overcome by uh, Alexander the Great and the Greeks. But then we're told of this little horn who's going to arise out of the four horns, the, the, the split off of Alexander's empire and scholars are in great agreement with this as well as being Antiochus Epiphanes. We looked at, don't be confused, last week in chapter 7 at one called the Little Horn. And I said I think that is referring to the Antichrist, the, the man of lawlessness as Paul calls him. Uh, but this is a, a different little horn. This chapter seems to, to point not to the end of ends, the end of all things, but rather to the end of a particular time period. Um, the writer is speaking of a more immediate opponent uh, than, than that final one. But he will not last forever, just like all of those who oppose God's people. Verse 25, he will be broken, but not by human hand. That is, God will take care of him. And once again, we see in the book of Daniel that our God reigns. He is sovereign. He is the Lord of history and the King of time. But why this whole chapter on this little horn? this relatively obscure king. 
I think the simple reason is it's important for God's people to prepare for what they will have to face. And to know that when they face it, they are not alone and that God is sovereign over all of their opposition. Jesus did this sort of thing, didn't he? In John chapter 16, verse 1, he's about to go away and he says, he opens the chapter by saying, I said these things to keep you from falling away. I want you to know what's ahead of you. And then we've got a whole rich chapter in John 16 on the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the chapter then ends, take heart, I've overcome the world. And so it's that kind of spirit we have here in Daniel chapter 8. God's people need to know what's ahead of them so that they do not fall away. And that when they're in the midst of opposition, to know that God is with them and that their God has overcome and he will triumph. And so it is for us as well. We will face trouble in this life. We will face opposition in this life. We will have our own little horns that will come up against us. But in the midst of it all, God is with us and God is sovereign over it. One more introductory word before we look at the text. The clarity of this prophecy is really helpful to those who are cynical about whether or not the Bible predicts the future. And I don't mean the kind of speculation you hear where people try to make the Cold War fit in the Bible or how modern nations fit into the Bible, that sort of thing. No, I'm talking about here how everyone basically agrees with Daniel 8 that this prophecy is now history. Persia, the Greeks, Alexander the Great, Antiochus Epiphanes, and God tells us how to interpret it. And so while there is a bit of cynicism or a lot of cynicism in some cases with individuals because of, you know, everybody has predicted the end of the world and people just start, you know, joking about it. I, I saw a comic strip one time of a guy holding up a sign that said, the end is near. And his wife next to him had a sign that said, you wish, you know. <laughs> And we all, some of us went through y, Y2K, you remember that? <laughs> that? That was doomsday, that everything's just going to blow up when it goes to 2000. Well, don't let those false predictions and don't let that radical fanaticism about the future lead you to, to make the mistake of believing that God is not in charge of history, that he controls history, and that he actually, in his word, says things about the future that comes to pass. God's knowledge of the future is as certain as his knowledge of the past. Think about Isaiah chapter 46. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things yet not yet done, saying, My counsel, counsel shall stand, I will accomplish my purpose." You see, God's very credibility is bound up with his ability to declare the end from the beginning. That's our God. God keeps his promises. He accomplishes his purposes. Therefore, we can trust him. We have every reason to trust him. The God who reveals the future controls the future. And for God's people during the time of, of this writing, this was to be a great encouragement to them, not knowing what the future held for them. And maybe you wonder, what does the future hold for you? And let this strange text encourage you today that our God is worthy to be trusted. So let's look at the text in three parts, the ram, the goat, and then the little horn. And we'll look at it as the vision is first given and then the interpretation in the latter part of the chapter for each of these three. So first of all, the ram, the vision is here in uh, verses 1 to 4. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, this vision appears to Daniel and so it, it takes place two years after the previous vision in, in chapter 7, 
Uh, as a side note, the text is, switches back here to Hebrew from Aramaic. Uh, most people don't understand why that's the case. I don't either, but maybe that's a dissertation for some of you uh, intelligent people out there. Um, what we do know is that Daniel is carried away some uh, 200 miles east to this strange place to, um, in the province of Elam, where he sees this vision at the Uli Canal. And the vision, verse 3, is of this ram that has two horns. Both were high, one horn higher than the other. This is a, in all likelihood a, an image of uh, Persia being stronger than Mede. You've got these, this empire, the Medo-Persia Empire. And it ran westward, it ran northward, and it ran southward, conquering everything. And it looked absolutely invincible. No beast, verse 4, could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. And that's what the Persian Empire did as they spread through Babylonia, Syria, Turkey, uh, Armenia, uh, the Caspian Sea, uh, Africa to the south. And so this is the picture of the ram. Now the interpretation is given in verses 15 to 20. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. Behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli Canal, and it said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. <laughs> I love that exhortation. Make this guy understand this. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened, and down goes Daniel. I fell on my face, and he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And as we learn later, this is not the end of the ends, but at the end of a particular time period. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. <laughs> it's, it's reminiscent isn't it, of, of, of John when he gets the vision of Jesus in Revelation, where he's just struck, and this is just an angel. See something here of the, the majesty of God, he said, Behold, I will make, make known to you what shall be in the latter end of the indignation, for it return, refers to an appointed time of the end. As for the ram you saw with two horns, these are the kings of Meda and Persia. And so it's revealed to Daniel once again about this empire, the Persian empire, and that is the vision of the ram. Secondly, there is the vision of the goat. Verses 5 to 8, we first, first see the, the vision Behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. That is, he came with great speed, his feet not touching the ground. Verse 5, it has one large horn used to strike the ram. This image of a horn in the Bible is always a picture of strength and power. And so while the, while the, uh, the ram seemed invincible, now we see that this goat has taken over I seen him standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath, like a linebacker, to just crush this creature. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. There was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong... The great horn was broken, and instead it came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. These four horns came after Alexander the Great. The kingdom split into four districts, Cassander over Macedon and Greece, 
Lysicimus over Thrace in Asia Minor, Seleucus over Syria and Babylon, and Ptolemy over Egypt. They would lead Greece until Rome would come and take them out. And these details are quite remarkable. Daniel is seeing things that takes place hundreds of years in advance. And he's told about this king in verses 21 to 22 where the interpretation of the vision is given regarding Greece. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first. As for the horn that was broken in the place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And we mentioned a little bit about Alexander the Great and his great reign uh, last week. Tutored by Aristotle as a boy, succeeded his father at age 20, conquered the known world by 26. His life would be brief in just 33 years. He would, he would die, but his, the spreading of the Greek culture is still with us today. And the New Testament written in Greek, you know, this is one of the ways I think the Lord providentially worked in the life of Alexander the Great. He conquered the known world with remarkable speed, but it ended in a moment. Just like that. Well, this little horn is then mentioned in verses 9 to 14. Out of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Daniel zooms in on just one of these four kingdoms that, that split off of Greece. One horn surpasses them all. He sets his sight on the host of heaven and the glorious land. That is, on God's people, God's host, God's land. And this one, Antiochus Epiphanes, came out of that Seleucid Empire after the death of Alexander the Great. He reigned from 175 B.C. to 163 B.C. He persecuted God's people severely. Now, compared to Alexander the Great or compared to Nebuchadnezzar, compared to other great rulers of, of the world, he's not that significant when you consider that he just ruled for a short period of time and he didn't rule the, the known world. So why all of this attention given to this one individual, Antiochus Epiphanes? And the reason is because of the kind of pain he afflicted on God's people. It was an unprecedented assault on God's people. His name, Epiphanes, which he gave to himself, means God manifest. His enemies used to call him Epimenes, meaning madman. And this little horn, again, it's not to be confused, I think, with the little horn in chapter 7, where I think it refers to an end-time antichrist. This little horn is a type of antichrist, as we see patterns of opposition against God's people woven throughout uh, the Bible that escalates and climaxes in the end-time Antichrist. But the attitudes and actions of Antiochus Epiphanes and the Antichrist are similar. This persecution happened around 170 B.C. and it lasted for about seven years. And the writer begins to tell us about how this individual grew in power and pride, attacking God's people and God himself. You see that in verse 10. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. This is either a, a mention of spiritual warfare, uh, which is obviously happening in this, in this story, or a reference to the saints themselves uh, as being uh, in, uh, mentioned as stars and uh, emblematically. I think that's accurate. 
uh, based on verse 24 and following as the interpretation of these events are given. And it's clearly taught there that uh, this individual will destroy many of God's people. He would destroy many of the saints, and that's what happened in history. This persecution began with the assassination of the high priest Onias III, and it continued until the death of Antiochus. Thousands of Jews were executed in a span of about seven years. Notice in verse 11 some of the things that he did. Uh, he, at, at, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And, uh, and the place of the sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it threw truth to the ground. We'll throw truth to the ground, and it will act, and it will prosper. The big event of Antiochus' opposition to the Jews was the desecration of the temple. It happened in 168 B.C. The temple was restored uh, in part in 164 B.C., there was a massacre of the Jews, a destruction of the city. Antiochus banned circumcision. He ordered the cessation of sacrifices in the temple. He defiled the temple by burning a pig's flesh on the altar. He placed an object sacred to the God of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. He burned the scriptures. He killed the faithful. This stern-faced king, as Daniel calls him in chapter 8, was completely wicked. And he took his stand against the prince of princes. But he would not prevail for long, as we shall see. This mighty ruler would die in 164 B.C. of a mysterious internal disease. Or as Daniel says, broken but not by human hand. That is, by the God he mocked. Verse 12 says that he would throw truth to the ground. That all that was at the heart of the faith of God's people, he would attack. That's one of the ways Satan continues to attack. I'll say more about that in a moment, Tro throwing truth to the ground. And then we see how long this lasts. Verse 13 mentioned, and 14 mentioned the 2,300 evenings and mornings. You have a few options here. This either refers to seven years. You just do the math, uh, or you cut it in half because it's evening and a morning, which would be three and a half years. Or maybe it just simply means something like, uh, limited, long but limited. His days would be limited. Either way, you, you do the math, it, 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 it works um, for significant events that happened historically. So that's the little horn. That's probably not a text you memorized uh, growing up, but here we are. Verse 23 to 7, we have the interpretation of uh, these crazy events and these dreadful events when it says, at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, which I take to be satanic power. That is, the things that Antiochus is doing is the kinds of things Satan has always been doing. The kinds of opposition that we will be facing. He will cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does. He will be victorious for a while, and he will amass uh, wealth. He will destroy mighty men and God's people, verse 25, for a season. He shall make deceit prosper. In his own mind, he shall be great. That is, he will be shrewd and deceptive. He will stop at nothing, all in narcissistic pride. Without warning, he shall destroy many. He will be ruthless 
And he will rise up even against the prince of princes. That is, he will take his stand against God because he thinks he is God. And he shall be broken, but not by human hand. That is, his reign will be short, and he will fall at the hand of God. Now, the Jewish book of 2 Maccabees records the end of this individual, Antiochus. And I'm sure you're reading it this morning in uh, chapter 9, verses 5 to 7. And listen how this report is given. But the all-seeing Lord, the God of Israel, struck him with an incurable and invisible blow. As soon as he stopped speaking, he was seized with a pain in his bowels, for which there was no relief, and with sharp internal tortures. And that very justly, for he had tortured the bowels of others with many and strange inflictions. Yet he did not in any way stop his insolence, but was even more filled with arrogance, breathing fire in his rage against the Jews and giving orders to drive even faster. And so it came about, he fell out of his chariot as it was rushing along, and the fall was so hard as to torture every limb of his body. Or as Daniel says, broken, but not by human hand. So Daniel is told here about true events of the future. Does the Bible really tell us the future? Yes. Did these events come true? Yes. Antiochus tried to exterminate the Jews and their religion. He murdered thousands of people, defiled the temple, destroyed the scriptures. And this all led to what is called, if you remember your history, the Maccabean Revolt in 164 B.C., where Judas Maccabees showed up and said, stop, hammer time. His nickname was the Hammer. And he would lead the Jews to victory and would restore their religion. He was a deliverer, and so much a deliverer that many thought Judas Maccabees was the Messiah. And today the Jews celebrate, and they will soon, Hanukkah, the festival of lights in, in remembrance of that victory. And it is our Lord himself who declared himself to be the light of the world. Now this message is very hard for Daniel to bear as it weighs on his soul as he thinks about what will happen to many of God's people. And so it says in verse 27, I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. I love this little verse where he says, I was overcome with sickness, and then I got up and went to work. You know? That is, he went about the work to which God had called him. He didn't cease to work because he knew what was about to happen in the future. He carried this heavy burden in his heart, knowing that opposition was going to come against God's people. And this verse has meant a lot to me in recent months. This is this little sentence. Then I arose and went about the king's business. What do you do when you have a heavy burden that leaves you emotionally distraught? After all, many things in this world can discourage you, right? Events in the country, the price of gas, your family, the church. What do you do? Look at Daniel. You do your job. You make disciples. That's what it means to be faithful. 
to persevere in the face of challenges and heartache. The best of saints are usually burdened by something deeply, and yet by God's grace they press on. The godly do the king's business even though they have an ailment, maybe a physical ailment. How many saints in history have been plagued by some physical ailment? Further, consider here how God has preserved Daniel now into his 80s. And God right now is sustaining us. Have you ever thought before, I should have lost my mind by now. (laughs) And it's only by God's faithfulness that I'm here. God has preserved Daniel. He's seen vision after vision. He's been laid out by angels. He's been thrown to lions. Here's this old guy now. And now he gets this vision, and he's just so deeply grieved by what's going to happen to God's people. He's, he's a lot different than Hezekiah. In 2 Kings 20, Hezekiah gets a vision about the Babylonian captivity that's going to take God's people, but it's not going to happen in his lifetime. And he says, okay, I don't have anything to worry about. It's not about me. There's going to be peace and security in my life. That's how self-centered Hezekiah became at the end of his life. Daniel cannot shake this because he, is so, he so loves God's people. But he doesn't give up. He doesn't quit. He goes about the king's business. Now, I want to paint on a broader scale for just a moment as we try to do something with, with applying this, this vision. And I want to leave you with two realities based on Daniel chapter 8. Number one, opposition is inevitable. And number two, our God is invincible. Number one, opposition is inevitable. Daniel's vision of this little horn shows us a consistent pattern of satanic opposition against God's people. Recall the three things that are mentioned, what this little horn does to God's people. Daily sacrifices are taken away. The place of the sanctuary cast down, and truth is cast to the ground. And I want to suggest to you that Satan continues to work in these areas in the church. These themes, these Old Testament themes, have escalated into New Covenant realities, and Satan is opposed to those New Testament, New Covenant realities. What I mean by that? Well, the daily sacrifice. Satan will attack your trust in the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Antiochus attacking the heart of the faith of God's people, so it is with the evil one wanting to attack the heart of our faith. These sacrifices were part of the Mosaic Covenant in Daniel's day. They no longer exist for Christians, but they were given to teach us the necessity of sacrifice for God's people to enjoy fellowship with God. And Antiochus wanted to put them to an end. And Satan will continue to attack us in this area because he is the accuser of our faith. He wants to, in other words, attack all your confidence in the cross. This is why we come back to the gospel again and again and again. We need to remember daily, just as these sacrifices were offered daily, that we are only forgiven in Christ, and it is only in Him that we have fellowship with God. And if we are in Christ, we are forgiven. We do have fellowship. We are loved. That there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Well, may the accuser roar of sins that I have done, I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. That's what we tell him. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there 
who made an end of all my sin? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the Father's right hand interceding for us? Satan wants you to doubt the full sufficiency of Jesus Christ's work on your behalf. He wants to attack your conscience to make you feel guilty so that you would lack joy and lack assurance. And it is only when we know that we are forgiven and free that we now want to lay down our lives as living sacrifices. So he wants to prevent us from that sense of freedom and joy. So we, as God's people, need to know about this stuff so they can prepare for it. We need to be prepared for this same type of satanic attack, assaulting our belief in the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. It is finished. Preach it to yourself, right? When your heart is, is then melted by the love of Christ, that changes everything. And so Satan doesn't want your heart melted by the love of Christ. He wants you to doubt the love of Christ. He wants you to doubt the full sufficiency of Jesus' work. He wants you to believe that it's Jesus plus something else. When it's nothing, it's Jesus and Jesus alone. So prepare for that attack. A second way the enemy attacks, this consistent pattern, the place of the Lord's sanctuary, is Satan will attack the community of faith. Antiochus sought to cast down the sanctuary, and Satan today will seek to destroy the new temple of God, the church. He may use persecution. In our day, it's not the persecution. It's more subtle tactics, isn't it? False teaching, lethargic worship, bitterness and division in the fellowship. And let me encourage you to press into community. Don't allow Satan to get a foothold in your relationships. Don't allow the temptation to isolate yourself to win. Don't fall to the temptation to harbor bitterness and unforgiveness, to develop a critical and cynical spirit. Don't gossip about your brothers and sisters. Instead, let's show mercy to one another. And when we do, we're punching the devil in the face, right? We bear with one another in love. We pray with one. This is how we fight the enemy. We outdo one another in showing honor. We speak God's word together. We sing together. We fight for joy in Christ together. Satan wants to afflict the fellowship of God's people. He wants you to doubt the full sufficiency of Christ's work. And thirdly, truth was cast to the ground. Satan continues to work in this way, wanting you to, to, to doubt the authority of Scripture. This is as old as the garden, isn't it? As the tempter said, did God really say that? Will you really actually die? And today in our world, feelings reign as truth is cast to the ground. But the church is to be the pillar and buttress of truth. God's word is our final authority. Not what pop culture says, not what some political party says, not what some charismatic teacher says, or even what my uncontrolled passions and yours may say. Satan wants you to adopt some form of authority other than God's word. And today what we see happening is that our culture normalizes certain sins, and when sin is normalized, it's very tempting to tolerate it, to accept it, to legitimize it, but it's unbiblical. Many Christians lack the boldness to withstand error, and others lack the discernment to detect error. This is the day of sloppy agape theology, where anything goes, 
and truth is cast to the ground. And I suggest to you that the evil one continues to attack us in these ways, doubting the full sacrifice sufficiency of Jesus Christ, afflicting the community of faith, and causing us to question the Bible. And we should keep in view what Peter said, right, in 1 Peter 5. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And these are some of the ways that he seeks to devour. As Peter says, we resist him, firm in the faith. So, number one, opposition is inevitable. Number two, our God is invincible. Daniel 8 shows us that we can trust in our sovereign God. He will have the last word. God told Gabriel these things around 550 B.C., and they played out over the next 400 years, just as he said. And this chapter should fill us with hope today because our God can be trusted. He is the Lord of history and the King of time. What he says, he will do. God's word can be trusted. As the psalmist says, every word of God proves true. <laughs> he predicts the rise and fall of empires the coming of Christ, and more. Psalm 33, verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. You can count on his word. You may not be able to count on people all the time. Can't count on your team winning most of the time. If you have my teams, you can count on God's word. Further, God's promises can be trusted. He is the God of the promises. Genesis 3.15, promise made. One's going to crush the head of the serpent. Good Friday, promise kept. God's promise to Abraham that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Deuteronomy 18, a prophet like Moses would be raised up. A priest king like Melchizedek. A virgin born Emmanuel. The suffering servant would come. A redeemer born out of Bethlehem would come. The king would ride in even on the foal of a donkey. What God says he will do, he will do. And now we live with this promise, our Christ will come again. And we have full certainty, full, full certainty, I'm making up words, I'm so excited about it, full certainty because of what he has said in the past, he will bring about in the future. He's accomplishing his purposes. Even though it may seem like a really long time, he's coming. God's Messiah is to be trusted. There would be a later deliverer that would give the ultimate victory, and it wasn't Judas Maccabeus, the ultimate light of the world, Jesus Christ. And through his sacrificial death, he put an end of sacrifices for all time. His blood was shed for our forgiveness. And one day he will return, and the Antichrist and all opposition will be broken and not by human hands just as Antiochus was. You see, the final word was not that of the ram, nor of the goat, but of the lamb. As hip-hop artist KB says, he's the lamb and the goat. <laughs> Trust in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world. He will reign forever, and we will dwell with him, and there will be no need for the sun, because Jesus Christ will give it its light. And one day soon, he will put all of his enemies under his feet. Opposition is inevitable until we see him. But our God is invincible, and we trust him.
Father, we bless you for your word today. May it strengthen our faith. May it build us up in our most holy faith. Make us a people of the promises who live on them, who trust them, knowing the God of the promises. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you are and all that you have done for us and all that you have for us in the future. We turn our attention now to your, your supper that you gave us to always keep in view what you have done for us and what you have for us. Stir us up even now as we continue to worship in Jesus' good name.